Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we are coming at you in the midst of March Madness, even though it's April. Yeah, basketball madness. Yeah, NCAA Final Four is about to happen here in the men's tournament, at least, is happening in Atlanta. Right, it's supposed to bring something like $70 million worth of revenue to the city. And Thank two, you. And 200 million people. Who yeah, will, Marta's going to be a little cramped. Yeah, and the streets. Ah, oh, and, and for this podcast, we're going to gripe about traffic in Atlanta. <laughs> Just kidding. We're going to talk about basketball, but we're not talking about the players. We're talking about the coaches. Mm-hmm. Because in honor of the NCAA basketball tournament, we thought it would be worthwhile looking at women's basketball coaches, which might sound like a, a narrow topic, but there is a lot in here to discuss. Yeah. I mean, there just aren't as many <laughs> as perhaps there should be. And something we'll get into is that, okay, so you've got the men's men's basketball. Mm-hmm. It's all coached by men. Yeah. And you've got the women's basketball. And it's coached by some women. But a lot of men, too. But a lot of men. Yeah, we're going to get into how Title IX actually corresponded with fewer women coaching female basketball teams and other factors at play. Huh, pun in all of this. But first, let's talk about the winningest basketball coach in the NCAA, Pat Summit. Yeah, Pat Summit uh, was actually a basketball player at University of Tennessee Martin when Title IX was introduced. So she was kind of in the thick of it. Uh, she's now the head coach emeritus of uh, Tennessee women's basketball team, 38 years as a head coach. And she stepped down because she made the very sad announcement that she has Alzheimer's. Yeah, and she's coming out with a new memoir. I believe the title is Summit Up. And her story is pretty incredible. Like you said, Caroline, she was coming up when Title IX was introduced. And before that, she talks about how the women's athletic budget at UT Martin, when she got there, was about $500 to be distributed (laughs) among volleyball, basketball, and tennis. And after the passage of Title IX in 1972, those budgets increased, but it wasn't exactly smooth sailing, as we'll talk about in more detail. But for a little more about Pat Summit, uh, she ended up playing in the first women's Olympic team to play basketball. And a little bit more, though, about Pat Summit. Uh, some highlights from her career were not only did she, you know, play with UT Martin, but she also played in the 1976 Summer Olympic Games in Montreal because for the first time they had a women's basketball team and Summit's team brought home the silver. And then she, then she went on to coach the team in the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Yeah, she has a really interesting perspective as far as, you know, having been a coach all this time, but also coming up during the whole Title IX passage and everything. Uh, in her new book, she says that three events in 1972 changed everything. And that includes that a group of dedicated women administrators formed the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women because, she says, the NCAA didn't yet care enough about females to bother with us. She also says that it was very important the announcement that women's basketball would be an Olympic sport for the first time at the at those 1976 Summer Olympics. And, of course, 
the passing of Title IX. Yeah, and she talks about how those developments made winning available to women. For instance, with that establishment, Caroline, that you mentioned of the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, title is a bit of a mouthful. They organized the first championship for women's basketball teams, which was a really important stepping stone to legitimize the sport for women. It also made competition more socially acceptable with Title IX, and it allowed women to play a full court basketball game. Well, thank God. I mean, I'm glad that they reached the point where they're like, good, it won't bounce your uterus around too much if you run up and down a full court. Right, because this reminds me of our episode on women running marathons. Mm -hmm. And even when Summit was going to those Summer Olympics in 1976 in Montreal, it was still a crazy idea for a woman to run that long of a distance. So this was the kind of mindset that was going on when Title IX was introduced. And Pat Summit is going to come up a few more times in this podcast because since she is the winningest coach in NCAA and the highest paid female coach in the NCAA, she's sort of held as, you know, the the pillar of female coaches. I'd say not just in basketball, but pretty much in all collegiate sports because she made such an incredible name for herself. For sure. But first, Caroline, mm-hmm. let's, speaking of women being allowed to play full court <laughs> basketball and bouncing our uteruses around, <laughs> let's, let's take a brief historical look at basketball for women. Yeah. Well, before it was for women, it was only for men, obviously, right. as is everything. Uh, sorry, did that, I didn't mean that to sound so bitter. Except for corsets. Yeah. Those yeah. have always just been for women. Yeah. High heels, though. No, that's true for men. Yeah. Anyway, started it. So yeah, Rosemary Skein wrote a very uh, comprehensive book titled, very simply, "Women College Basketball Coaches." I bet you can guess what that's about. Yeah, but so in 1891, basketball was designed for male athletes who needed a winter sport because, God forbid, they not play sports for a minute. So the first public game was in March 1892, but it was not that long after that women started playing. Three months after that first public men's game in March 1892, Senda Berenson, Smith College's director of physical training, introduced the game to women. And the first women's game was played March 22nd, 1893 at Smith. And in case you're wondering at the score, Kristen, uh, sophomores five, freshmen four. Yeah, but that game was just between Smith students. The first intercollegiate women's game happened between Berkeley and Stanford. Berkeley alumni out there, you won. Oh, no, you lost. (laughs) (laughs) Kristen really wanted you to win. But trivia alert. Stanford's Martha Clark made the very first basket in women's intercollegiate history. And she did so while wearing a woolen uniform that covered everything except for the face, neck and hands, as were, you know, the, the uniforms that all the women would be wearing. I noticed you did not include feet in that list. Were they footy uniform? They were not footy <laughs> uniform. I think they were allowed to expose their feet and in order to put them into shoes. Well, you know, we it's it is scandalous to have women running and playing sports even in full body footy uniforms. Uh the day of that game, only two men were allowed to watch and they were a PE, well, physical education director and an instructor. Women guarded the windows of the auditorium with sticks to keep men from sneaking a peek. 
And uh, Skane writes, even letting women watch was apparently considered dangerous. Since basketball was invented for men, physicians who believed women were delicate said women would become hysterical watching other women play basketball. Oh, my. Oh, my. Although I do sometimes become hysterical watching (laughs) sporting events. But probably not for the reason that they think. This is true. Uh, So it takes a little while, though, for them to develop rules for women's basketball. In 1894, the first women's rules appeared, but they weren't widely circulated. Then, in June 1899, Senda Berenson, who was that director of physical training at Smith College, worked with other East Coast physical ed teachers to develop women's rules at the Conference on Physical Training. And so in October of 1901, finally... A good year. Yes, Spalding Sporting Goods published her rules as the official rules for women's basketball. But those rules emphasize maintaining ladylike behavior, of course. No snatching of the ball, for instance. But Berenson did favor physical activity. She said, quote, it's all the more to develop health and endurance if they desire to become candidates for equal wages. So a little bit of feminism tossed in there, there you as go. well. Basketball, playing basketball can help you earn equal wages with men. It can close the gender gap. Unfortunately, Cinda Berenson, those predictions were not, not really, uh, would not come to fruition. Yeah. Well, Clelia Duell Mosher, I'm sorry if I, I'm really sorry if I just butchered her name. She was a physician back around this time in the Victorian era. And she agreed with Berenson as far as like, let women have physical activity. So no, she, she had nothing to do with actual basketball, but it was during this time that she was of the same school of thought that women actually needed to have some physical activity. And she wanted to prove that women were not inferior to men and that the frailties attributed to sex were really just the effects of binding garments like those corsets, insufficient exercise, and mental conditioning. So get those women onto the court playing sports and maybe one day we'll be equal. Yeah, because, I mean, as much as we think about how exercise is something that we today consider part of, you know, a well-balanced life where you're supposed to exercise, what, five days a week for (laughs) 60 minutes at a time. I'm pulling that out of the air. You're supposed to do it a lot. Yeah. But when all this was going on, it was socially unacceptable for women to be moving around like that. This was also the time when things like bicycles were coming into vogue. And it was a big deal for women to ride bicycles. Bloomers. Yes, they would be straddling things. How would you do that? You'd have to wear maybe something like a bloomer, invented by Amelia Bloomer, who was an early feminist. Uh, You know, things that we take for granted were revolutionary at the time, like basketball. Um, But let's talk about a few more of the more modern pioneers of women's basketball, such as Carol Ekman, who is considered the mother of collegiate women's basketball national championships. She's best known for establishing the first National Invitational Women's Intercollegiate Basketball Tournament in 1969. Yeah, and then we have Teresa Shank Grentz, who is the former head coach of the women's basketball program at the University of Illinois, Rutgers University, and St. Joseph. She's a member of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame and was the Olympic head coach in 1992. And that year, her team captured the bronze medal in Barcelona. And Billy Moore for some more trivia, was the first coach in women's basketball history to lead teams from two different schools to national championships. And those schools were California State Fullerton 
and UCLA. So we are moving into the modern era. And like we said in 1972, Title IX happens. So with Title IX, schools that are receiving this federal funding have to equally distribute it for men's and women's athletics. But what we want to look at is how Title IX impacted not so much the players and the the women who, like Pat Summit, benefited from Title IX by having more resources to be able to get out on the court or get out on the field and play, but how for, again, for people like Pat Summit, once their time was up playing, whether or not coaching would be more open to them as a lucrative occupation. Right. Well, it definitely influenced how people saw uh, women's sports and not just making it more socially acceptable, but also making it, yeah, like you said, more lucrative because all of a sudden all this money's flowing in and now maybe men who wouldn't have considered coaching women's teams are like, huh, there's more in it for me now. So, yeah, speaking of men being interested in coaching women's teams, a curious thing happens when Title IX is passed. In 1972, women coached more than 90% of women's teams. But in such a short amount of time, by 1978, that number had dropped to 58.2%. And as of 2010, it was down to 42.9%. So today, women coach fewer than half of women's college teams. Yeah, and since 2000, NCAA programs have added 1,774 women's head coaching jobs. Men have filled over 1,200 of those openings. And, you know, only about 3% of men's teams are coached by women. And that's a whole other issue. Like, why aren't women coaching men's teams either? Yeah, and that percentage, the, the percentage of women coaching men's teams, has not changed at all. Since Title IX, the only thing that has dropped is the percentage of women coaching other women. And a lot of these statistics are coming from a really comprehensive article from ESPN Magazine written by Kate Fagan and Luke Cyphers, on which they're looking into this gender gap in women coaching, specifically women's teams, because you would assume, oh, well, women's sports teams, you can have a women's a female coach. But no, because like you said, Caroline, uh, the increased money coming into women's sports simply made it a more desirable option for men's coaches who might not have been as qualified right. as potential women's coaches. Well, so they looked into some of the reasons as for like why there aren't as many women coaching teams. And a lot of it has to do with, OK, there's a small pool of female candidates um, there's a lack of second chances for female coaches. A lot of women, if they screw up, it's just kind of, it's not the same revolving door type of situation that men have. Like they can just go to a different team. A lot of the times, if women are fired or lose their coaching jobs, that's it for them. Uh, a lack of female mentors, women just not applying for these jobs, retaliation for Title IX complaints. But a lot of it also has to do with sexism and homophobia. Yeah, there's this habit of women's basketball coaches hiring male assistants uh, to be kind of that, quote-unquote, straight presence because there's this whole issue 
um, in recruiting of, of negative recruiting of saying, you know, we're a family friendly program, but over there, you know, that, that female coach at that school, you know, we're not so sure. Yeah. Because the stereotype is, is that, uh, female sports coaches are lesbians. And so the type of homophobic recruiting that goes on is referred to as family friendly recruitment saying things like to a new recruit like oh you know we we're a very family oriented environment with a, a wink and a nudge to the parents saying don't worry your daughter won't be coached by a lesbian and mm-hmm. possibly corrupted because of this and again ESPN magazine covered this in February 2011 and in and among 55% of the college players that ESPN spoke to they said that sexual orientation was, quote, an underlying topic of conversation with college recruiters. 55%. So the homophobia is a pretty rampant thing. And it's also a deterrent for would-be coaches who might be gay, who are like, you know what, I don't want to have to live a closeted professional mm-hmm. life and also be, you know, slurred for yeah. my for my lifestyle. Yeah, that same ESPN article talked about how these homophobic uh negative recruiting policies or not policies but practices are pretty unique to the women's game. You don't you don't have a a male recruit coming up from high school coming up the ranks and them talking about you know, is- issues of family friendliness, but it's it's a general open secret as far as like the code words of family friendly. Yeah. Um. For instance, University of Tennessee and University of Connecticut don't play each other anymore, allegedly due to UConn's anti-gay recruitment against UT, claiming that, oh, Pat Summit is a lesbian and so you don't want to send your kids there. Apparently it was a huge rivalry and the game used to be a giant draw mm-hmm. until finally... Summit and University of Tennessee were like, you know, we're not even going to play this game. Well, so now anymore. that's less money coming into a women's game. Right. Which, you know, <laughs> women's sports can use as much money as possible, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. But um, in 1982, ESPN, but ESPN also talks about how in 1982, there was this homophobia mongering case of Pam Parsons who resigned as coach of South Carolina after allegations that she had a relationship with one of her basketball players. And they say that since that incident, that kind of anti-gay recruitment has been almost a common part of the process, which is unfortunate. Yeah, so common that Portland State's Sherry Mural is the only out lesbian in Division I women's basketball. Yeah, and we should say, too, that it's not just a thing of the whole family-friendly thing. It's not just a wink and a nudge to, you know, homophobic sentiments, but it's also a thing, a wink and a nudge saying, oh, this isn't a black program either. We are, you know, everything will be safe for your child. There's a lot of, there's a dirty underbelly to this that's going on. So, yeah, we mentioned how, you know, with all with the influx of funds after the passage of Title Nine, coaching a women's basketball game became or a team, I'm sorry, became more attractive to male coaches. And this brings us to what we call a glass wall phenomenon where men can coach women while women are shut out of the men's game. So, you know, they can see the jobs through the glass wall, but they can't get there. And along these same lines, a really interesting survey by Nefertiti Walker, who is a UMass Amherst professor and former Division I basketball player, 
she talked to male coaches about, you know, would you hire a woman? Would you want to work with a female coach? She found out that breaking that institutional norm of hiring a woman as a coach really required an exceptional candidate. Like women have a much higher burden of proof, to use a legal term, because they all cited Pat Summit. Yeah. They were all like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You've got Pat Summit. I mean, she's great. I'd totally work with her. And of, it's like, uh, of course you would hire the winningest coach in the NCAA. But there, there does seem to be sometimes uh, a disconnect maybe between what male athletic directors or coaches think is going on. It's almost like a, a blind sexism that might be happening to what female coaches or would-be coaches um, are feeling. Um, there was a study that t- took place in the 1980s, which found that male athletic directors believed that female coaches left their schools for just individual reasons, like wanting to spend more time with family or what have you, whereas the female coaches who left had actually jumped ship due to structural barriers, like the glass wall phenomenon, Mm -hmm. like the kind of homophobia that is still happening so often today. Um, And it, it is a problem because it doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be a ton of communication, at least, between... Um, these, you know, the, the men and women in athletics. It's just kind of a thing where the female basketball players don't see many female coaches. They don't have many models and they also know of women who are coaching in the, the rare positions where they are coaching or are assistants and they really don't like the jobs all that much. Mm -hmm. And so they choose other paths. Right. Yeah. That, that's definitely a cycle. You see fewer coaches. You have fewer role models. You might not choose that path. And then you have no female coaches anymore. And it's interesting that other Division One sports, who which are traditionally coached by women, are starting to see a decline also in female coaches. Like uh, Division One softball, female coaches are down from 74.8% in 2000 to 60% in 2010. And Division One field hockey female coaches dropped from 98% in 2000 to 87% in 2010. So maybe not as significant as basketball, as the dip that basketball is seeing. But still, some of these coaches that ESPN talked to were concerned, like, hey, we don't want to, you know, it's not that we hate men, we just don't want to lose coaching opportunities. And Nicole Lavoie, who's the associate director of the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sports, has looked into this issue of you know the female coaching role model a lot. And she talks about how youth sports are overwhelmingly coached by men. The whole thing is that the dads coach while the moms drive and put out orange slices. (laughs) And so they grow up to be recruits that don't want a female coach. There was also a study that we found called Working with Male Athletes, the experience of U.S. female head coaches. Um, And they they talked to these female coaches about their experience with mentors and interestingly found that one of the common themes was actually having a negative experience Mm -hmm. uh, with youth sports with a female coach. Um, and they also cited, though, an NCAA survey from 2009, which found that, uh, A, only 10% of female student athletes even care to pursue coaching. And that of that, of the rest of those who did not want to pursue it, 53% cited knowing a female coach was not happy in her role. So something is clearly going on here. Yeah. Well, Matthew Malady in September 2012 asked, why don't we care that there aren't any female coaches coaching men, for instance? Like, why don't, why isn't it more of a big deal that we have so few women out there? 
And he, he wrote that there are zero female head or assistant coaches for the 122 teams playing in the NBA, MLB, NHL, and NFL. It's basically considered impossible. He says that only three women have ever been assistant coaches for men's college basketball teams. That's Bernadette Maddox, Jennifer Johnston, and Stephanie Reddy. And he said that this whole choosing a coach from such a narrow pool thing is a totally flawed system. The narrow pool being only men and only certain men. Yeah, it was illuminating to read the coverage of Nancy Lieberman, who was a superstar point guard for Old Dominion, who played professionally for both men's and women's teams before coaching the WNBA's Detroit Shock and then became head coach of the Texas Legends, which was a men's team in the NBA's Development League. And it was this huge deal because finally we have a female coach of a professional team, even though it was a Development League. But nevertheless, all of these major media outlets are covering Nancy Lieberman, and the only thing they want to talk about is the fact that, oh, you're a woman coaching a man's team and talking to these athletes like, how is it being, you know, being coached by a woman? How can you handle that? And most of the time, the responses were just along the lines of, she's coach. What? I mean, we, yeah. she calls the plays and we run them. What else do you want to know? Yeah. And there was one interview. I, you know what? I'm not even sure if it was about Nancy Lieberman or just another female coach, maybe even on the high school side. Mm-hmm. But one of the players said, yeah, she's tiny, but when she's mad, she's seven feet tall. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's not an issue of she has a vagina. I'm not going to listen to her. It's she's the coach. She's the authority figure. She's telling us what to do. Mm -hmm. We're the players. We listen to her. And I can't imagine that in locker room situations, there might be different dynamics of a woman sitting there and talking to a group of guys versus a guy sitting there talking to a group of women. Mm -hmm. But I wonder why that is, why we're more comfortable with men leading a group of women on the field than we are with a woman leading a group of men on the field or the court, I should say, as we're speaking about basketball specifically. Maybe it's just what we're used to seeing. Yeah. I mean, what we are accustomed to seeing on the television. Yeah. I mean, it almost makes you wish that Pat Summit had, you know, coached the UT men's team instead of the women's team. But then again, we don't want to take away good coaches from right. women's athletics. And I think that is one of the main reasons why she is so dedicated to that women's team, because she came up through the ranks mm-hmm. and knew firsthand what it was like to be marginalized as a female athlete. Um, and speaking of marginalization, uh, because this is kind of a downer topic, let's talk about wages. Oh, yeah, salary. Let's get into that. Now, the 2011 coaches' compensation for schools and for the previous five NCAA women's basketball tournaments were pretty handsome. You know, Pat Summit makes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, that year, according to stats published by USA Today, she brought in $1.9 million. I want to become a women's basketball coach. I'd be like, just throw the ball at the net. You got it. Go, ladies. Hooray. Uh, but just for contrast, Pat Summit, again, winning his coach. Mm-hmm. But just for contrast, again, Pat Summit winning his coach in the NCAA, $1.9 million. Her men's coach counterpart at the University of Tennessee brought in $1.5 million. A little bit less. Mm-hmm. But if we go to the top earner for men's teams over in Louisville with Rick Pitino, that dude brought home $8.9 million. (laughs) 
Hmm, you can buy some fancy new shoes with that. So basketball is almost as lucrative as podcasting, Caroline. Yeah, I mean, Summit's compensation package is definitely unusual for women coaches. Um, but from 2003 to 2010, let's get some perspective. The average salary for the coach of an NCAA Division One men's team in any sport increased by 67% to 267000 ish The average salary for the coach of a women's team increased... Only by 16% in that time to 98,000. And I'm sure that, you know, people would say, hey, why are you complaining about a $98,000 average salary? But when you look at this breakdown of these major pay gaps for male and female coaches, uh, you know, it's, I think it speaks to something larger. Yeah. And then for Division One basketball in particular, the median salary for coaches of a men's team in 2010 was nearly twice that of coaches for women's team. And over the past four years, the median pay of men's head coaches increased by 40% compared with 28% for women's coaches. So, yes, you could argue, okay, if you're looking at all Division One sports in, t- in one package, men could be making more because they're coaching more of the high-profile sports like football basketball women might be te- uh, uh, coaching more of the low profile sports okay mm-hmm. so like softball or something yeah but yeah i mean when you look at the actual basketball stats women coaches just are not getting the same increases in salary that men are and you would say well that's not right because under the equal pay act of 1963 the pay for a male basketball coach versus a female basketball coach should be comparable. But those differences emerge from third-party money. For instance, you know, Louisville's Rick Pitino brings in a bulk of that $8.9 million, not so much from coaching, but on supplements, talent fees, appearance fees, a de- endorsement agreements with apparel companies, summer camps. Summer camps are a huge way yeah. that uh, c- coaches make cash. And those kinds of opportunities are simply not there as much for female coaches. And there was an interesting uh, thing pointed out. Uh, the writer uh, talked to some lawyers who deal with contracts and said that athletic directors usually assume that women's players will be better students. So the academic clauses often are not included for these coaches. And those academic clauses being, you know, if your players, if your student athletes do really well in school, you'll make a bit of a bonus. They're like, women are already smart. Yes. So we're just going to give you less money. Yeah, exactly. For the women's teams, the, the academic clause isn't is not there, but for the guys' teams, it's like, high five, oh, all your players made made g- good grades, good for you. But there's uh, an interesting way, too, that men's coaches for women's teams can actually offer a cost savings to athletic departments because the Equal Pay Act focuses on gender-based discrimination. So the New York Times offered the example of Kentucky's coach of the men's basketball team earning a $100,000 bonus when his team made round 16 of the NCAA tournament. But the Wildcats women's coach received a $40,000 bonus for doing the exact same thing. But because both coaches were dudes, no problem Mm -hmm. under the Equal Pay Act. So maybe... Some schools are actively courting more male coaches because they just don't have to deal with all of the equal pay kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the fact of the matter is about a third of women's teams 
were profitable as of 2010, according to the Department of Education. And even then, the annual net profit was on average less than $16,000. And those were usually among smaller schools. So, sure, I mean, from a financial standpoint, investing a lot in female coaches when you're not getting much out of those teams, money-wise, uh, you might not be as motivated to to really invest a lot of a lot of resources in that. Yeah, but there's a lot of talent out there and I mean Bleacher Report is one of the sources that did recognize a lot of coaches of women's teams, not just female coaches of women's teams, but male coaches also. I mean, they there were a lot of names among their 50 best college basketball coaches and I won't list all of them, but of course Pat Summit's on there. Uh Tara Vanderveer from Stanford, uh Vivian Stringer from Rutgers, and then people like Andy Landers from UGA who coaches the the Lady Dogs. There is room. There is more room for women to coach sports, but it's I mean when is it is it, when is it going to change, Kristen? Are when are we going to be like, yes, we want more women role models? Is it just going to become a cycle of terrible, terrible things where we have few women's coaches, so girls grow up not having women's coaches, and then they only want men for coaches? I mean, I I feel like the problem is so multifaceted mm-hmm. and largely money driven yeah. that I don't think that not to be a cynic, I don't think that we are going to see many major changes anytime soon at all. Because bottom line, I think the fact that uh, only a third of women's teams, and I think that is across sports, are even profitable, Mm -hmm. um, is an argument against investing more resources in women's sports. And I think socially, you know, we don't value women's athletics as much as we value men's, period. Think about the NBA versus the WNBA, Mm -hmm. which how many jokes have you heard about watching women play basketball? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> insert punchline. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that when I would like, you know, listeners, as we watch the NCAA tournament and stuff to, I don't know, consider all of the attention that those men's teams get versus the women who are in, you know, their own NCAA tournament. For instance, today on the news, I heard that, you know, President Obama released his brackets for the NCAA team. I think he's pulling for Indiana to win everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president's talking about it. Yeah. You know, no one's doing the same thing for the, the the women's teams. And if they were to, it would be it would probably be some kind of a joke, you know. And uh, but but it's worth thinking about from from the coaching downward. and Also, those recruiting tactics. Of, yeah. You know, the 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 negative assumptions and also why would it be a bad thing if your coach is a lesbian? All, yeah. the, all that kind of stuff that's wrapped up into something we might not think about all that much. A, because we don't see it because we don't see women coaching all that much. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's really only this one time of year when we're even paying all that much attention to basketball. Maybe that's just me. I'm not an avid basketballer. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think we're going to be waiting a while yeah. before we see a lot more women's coaches. And, you know, maybe we're going to be waiting even longer than I think because obviously the numbers are on the downswing. Yeah. But it's definitely, it's worth a conversation of, you know, why, why are we so not okay with seeing women coaching, especially women coaching men's teams. Mm -hmm. They're here and there, but they're such anomalies. Well, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of men's coaches 
male men's coaches who maybe weren't good enough to play in college, but mm-hmm. they're still excellent coaches because they have a head for the game. Yeah. They've studied, you know, they, they love the game. They're great coaches. So, you know, that's another argument. Like, if a woman who didn't necessarily play at a big school, play basketball at a big school in college, she can still coach women or men if she studies, is passionate about the game. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean... But like you said, though, I mean, that all roots back to that finding out of uh, UMass Amherst, uh, Nefertiti Walker's study, that female coaches inherently have that higher burden Mm -hmm. of proof to meet. Yeah. So we could obviously just go on and on and so on. So if we could just clone Pat Summit, that's the answer. Yes. Uh, but in the meantime, basketball players out there, coaches, anyone interested in sports, or if you just want to send us your bracket, <laughs> let us know your I, thoughts. I won't know what to do with it. <laughs> Momstuff at discovery.com is our email address. And speaking of letters, I have one here from Emily. She says... While listening to your podcast on animal testing, my opinion on animal testing really changed. I have an albino lab rat as a pet. Long story short, he needed a home before he was fed to a snake. And I realized I just couldn't deal with the thought of my sweet little friend being in pain just for a product that might not even hit the human market ever. I wish products would not contain dangerous enough ingredients that require animal testing to make sure the product is safe for human use. After so many years of scientific research, we know what is and isn't toxic. While I understand there will always be animal testing for medical purposes to save human lives, I hope animal testing will decrease in the cosmetic industry. These little fellows have feelings, too, and I've made a great friend with a rat bred to be food slash a lab test. So thank you, Emily, and I I am just picturing your little friend wearing a teeny tiny mouse hat. Well, I've got one here from Elise about that same episode on animal research And she writes, it got me a little riled. I am a MD, PhD student studying molecular genetics, and I use mice in my research for my PhD. And, of course, I listened to this most recent podcast while working in my lab. I know most of the podcast was about commercial testing on animals, but you did seem to conflate animal research and animal testing on occasion. I must confess I don't know what the rules are for animal testing of commercial products or even if there are any rules, which is a scary thought. However, animals used in medical school research are very tightly controlled. Our university receives National Institutes of Health funds, so all investigators at the school have to comply with NIH animal testing guidelines. Everyone who works with lab animals has to go through training, and there are very strict rules for how you can operate on or kill an animal. For example, animals can only be euthanized using methods proven to cause the animal minimal suffering, and if the surgery is done on the animal, even the dosing of anesthetics is regulated. Also, when you apply to the NIH for funding, you have to estimate the number of animals that you use and justify why you can't use fewer than that number. I know this system isn't perfect, and it took me a long time to come to terms with using animals in my research, but for now, it's what we've got. So thanks, Elise, and to everyone who has written into MomStuff at Discovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook there. Leave us a note if you'd like. You can follow us on Twitter as well at MomStuffPodcast and on Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And if you would like to learn more about basketball and other sports, you can find all of the rules at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 